Thank you, Colin, and welcome to worship all of you this morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here. It's kind of surreal to be back uh, on the platform at this hour. When we moved into this building, we were renters, and the stage was actually on that east wall, looking way back this way, which was horrible for the preacher, because I would be preaching, and just about 40 yards away, everyone's having their own side conversations. They couldn't have cared less what I was saying. So we changed that, and uh, we moved out. After we bought this building, we renovated it. We were in the Liberty Theater for a, for a short time. We moved back into this building as owners, and in October of 2015, we went to two worship services. And then this little thing happened, perhaps you've heard of it, a pandemic. And in March of 2020, we went back to one service on three floors with watching remotely. And now, here yet again, as the demonstration of all things either being nimble on the positive side or having no clue how to run a church on the negative side, we're back to two services. So welcome, you are at the Varsity service, the 9 a.m. service. We're so glad that you're here. And you're here in August. Now, August is a little bit different usually for us at Bethel. We like to walk through a book of the Bible and do an entire expository preaching sermon series. And we just finished one of those up in August, and we're going to start another one of those in September. But now we're in sort of a vision casting, a who are we, what are we doing sermon series through the month of August. And we're talking specifically about generosity. Our church across all five campuses is in an investment campaign. Where we're inviting people, calling people to sort of reorder their hearts, their minds, their bodies, their assets, their relationships, and orient them towards generosity. It's generosity that I really want to talk about. And I was reminded this week of a great old story, an old country church, probably not too far from here, an old fiery preacher is just letting his congregation have it about giving. Always a good idea to really shame your congregation about giving. It always works out well. And he's asking these rhetorical questions about how much God has done and therefore how much they should do in response. And he says, I wonder if any of you had $1,000, would you give any of it to the church? Well, Farmer Brown hadn't been paying a whole lot of attention, but the $1,000 comment kind of got his, got his wrinkle. And he just reflexively, didn't even mean to, out loud, just went, I would. And people heard him. He spoke in church. And so the preacher got encouraged because that happens sometimes too. He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And how many of you, if you had 10 cows, would you give two of them cows to the Lord? How about you, Farmer Brown? And Farmer Brown said, yes, I would. Oh, now we're having a little interplay here. And how many of you, if you had two pigs, would give one of those pigs to the Lord? And Farmer Brown sat there, and he scratched his chin, and he furrowed his brow, and he says, now you're getting personal, preacher, because you know I have two pigs. <laughs> See, generosity is that arena. It's the stadium. It's the sandbox that we live in where what we claim to believe, what we confess, actually gets rubber on road. And we get to actually say, no, this is what I confess to believe. This is what I claim to believe. And so this is what I really believe. And so it changes the way I behave. This idea of generosity is massively important. Our Bible is telling us something from cover to cover, from the table of contents to the maps. It's telling us that our God is the God of grace, that he is a God of generosity. 
That's going to lead us to our big idea then for this morning as we continue in our sermon series on generosity for this uh, investment campaign. Our big idea goes like this. Generosity is a synonym for grace. Generosity is a synonym for grace. Those who have received grace, who have actually received grace, are by definition changed. And so they think and they feel and they act differently. And that looks like in the world today, generosity is a synonym for grace. Now then, we are in an investment campaign. And I want to let you know a little bit about that because today you probably sat down on top of a commitment card. You can turn those in today if you like. There's a black box between our exit doors walking out of the third floor building here. Or we're going to have sort of a more formal gathering of these cards next Sunday, August 28th. Or you can do this online, Bethelbible.com slash abundant. I want to tell you very transparently what we're after, what we're trying to accomplish. The trustee elders, the executive staff, each of our campus leadership teams believe the Lord is leading us to do is to raise $6 million. $2 million of that would go to the acquisition of the buildings immediately behind us here downtown and some of the parking lots that are connected with that space. So it would be an increase in space of about 26,000 square feet plus a lot of land for even future expansion. Prioritize there is going to be for children and student ministry. We know we've got to really give a concerted effort to growing those areas of ministry in this context. And so we're very, very excited about what the Lord has in store for us. So we believe. There are other priorities at our other campuses, including our missions emphases, specifically building a school in Sierra Leone, West Africa, where these children come in from this very underprivileged, under, uh, under poverty line context, and they are schooled and they are given the gospel and taught life skills, as well as a significant amount of debt reduction that Bethel currently carries. So if you've got any questions about that at all, please let me know. We are asking people to give above and beyond their typical giving to this campaign. I was told this week, I've been in church a whole time. I've been in a lot of campaigns. It seems like you guys are not laying it on nearly thick enough. Like, where's the swelling music? Where's the guilt and the shame? And in the same conversation, someone else goes, man, I've been in capital campaigns in church for a long time. I feel like you guys are wearing us out already. Like, enough with the campaign language. So I don't know. I don't know what the right balance is. We're doing our best. We do not want to use any sort of manipulation or coercion. We just want to tell you, what we believe God is doing in and through our church. And so if you're visiting with us, and you're thinking, oh gosh, the church is talking about money. No apologies. You're getting to see us at our best. When we as a community of believers, as a community of faith say, this is who we understand our God to be, and this is how we respond, and this is how we live our lives generously. I want to tell you the story very quickly of the Bible. No, that's impossible because it's a big book and there's a lot going on in there. But I want to tell you the story of God. Our God is a giving God. He has always been characterized by extravagant and unmerited favor in his giving. It means he's always given with no expectation of getting back. Do you know what? That's our God. He gives with no expectation of getting anything back. That's the thing that is so unbelievably compelling about our God. It is his grace. Yes, he's big. Yes, he's awesome. He's mighty. He's smart. He's shiny. But the thing about our God that is so distinctive about him is his grace. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we've got the story of Israel. And what you've got is the, the Son of God, effectively. The nation of Israel has been taken up out of Egypt. 
And you have to understand the significance of the Exodus. They were dead. The Son of God was dead. Cut off separate, not where he was supposed to be. Israel was in Egypt under hard bondage, but God did a thing. By grace, God led them out from under the grip of Pharaoh. A very clear metaphor for our own individual lives with sin, by the way. God leads them through death and into life. And as they're wandering around, we get this wonderful verse in Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. Because they're utterly dependent on God, God feeds them and he sustains them. Exodus 16, 18. But when they, the Israelites, measured it, that's the manna, with an omer, that's a measuring bucket, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. This is Israel. And the text makes it very, very clear. They did not deserve God. They did not deserve God looking after them. They did not deserve God providing for them. In fact, Moses warns them, do not hoard the manna. Hear my voice, Moses says, do not hoard the manna. Which means, of course, day one, what did they do? They hoarded the manna. And of course, it got rotten and it stanked. Nasty. And Moses says, I told you. The whole provision God wants to show them is that God would be seen as a God that provides for his people undeservedly so that, here's the so that, not just so that they would like him, no, no, so that the rest of the nations would see what it looked like for a people to trust their God. And unfortunately, the Old Testament is a sad recurring narrative of the people of God failing to trust their God. Every 50 years, the land was supposed to lie fallow for two years, the seventh year for the Sabbath year, and then the year of Jubilee, two years, no work. They never did it once because they didn't trust that God would provide for them. And so it is this sad, recurring nightmare of disobedience and distrust. And you read the Old Testament and you're left wanting more. Who will rescue the Son of God, Israel? Who will rescue? Who will make this right? And finally, we come to the New Testament. And a Gentile physician named Luke writes a two-volume set called Luke and Acts. And one of the underlying themes of Luke's writings, both of his books together, Luke and Acts, and by the way, this Gentile writes more words in your New Testament than any other author, including Paul. And Luke's refrain, if you want to take a thread from Luke 1.1 all the way through Acts 28, loose your hold on stuff, Grow your hold on others. That's Luke Acts. Release your stuff. Increase your relationships. So we've got the gospel of Luke, and Luke is telling us all these wonderful little narratives, and we come to the very central hinge of Luke's gospel, and it's in a surprising spot. It is in Luke chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. Here is the hinge of Luke's entire gospel. And Zacchaeus... See, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jericho and they come across Zacchaeus who was a wee little man and a wee little man was he because apparently he was from, you know, Ireland. I don't know why we sing that little song the way we do. He wasn't Irish. He was apparently just a short little fellow. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Why does Zacchaeus say that? Because he was a Jew and he knew the law. If you defraud anyone, you must pay it back double. Zacchaeus says, no, I'm a changed man. I get grace. I will restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come 
to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the focal point of the entire gospel of Luke is Luke 19.10. This is why I'm here, the son of man. This Zacchaeus, this traitorous tax collector, does what the good and moral and decent rich young ruler in the previous chapter of Luke 18 could not do. He responds with generosity. It's been said of Zacchaeus, he was walking through the eye of a needle and living to tell about it. He had been previously mastered by the passion to get, then he became consumed with the passion to give. Zacchaeus became a new person, and so his grip on stuff was loosened. Authentic salvation changes our orientation and our thinking about wealth and stuff and resources. And so Luke's point is very strong. It jumps off the text. Those who understand the grace of God are generous. And if our conversion or salvation hasn't produced a different mindset towards stuff or loosened our grip, then we're not, according to Luke's description, saved. Now, that's a very big deal. Now, let me get to our central passage because we've had the story of Israel in the Old Testament. We've seen how this one Jesus comes and he changes people so that they are supposed to be like the child of God. Now, let's go into the New Testament and see this played out a little bit further in our day and time. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's going to explain how what was going on in Israel was sort of transformed by the ministry, the word, and the work of Jesus. And now here's how that works itself out in the age of the church. Paul's going to do what Paul does. He's going to do the theology of stuff. This is Paul's master stroke. He does great theologies. Whether we know it or not, all of us have a theology of stuff. And not to try to put you in a box, but there are really only three theologies of stuff. And all of us, at one level or another, adhere to these three theologies or ideologies of stuff. The first one goes like this. Socialism. Now, depending on which news network you watch, your back may have just gotten up. Relax. I'm talking about a theology, an ideology of stuff, of resources. Socialism essentially says that wealth belongs to the community. You, as an individual, have no real say in how it is spent. It's always based on the needs of the community, which actually, by definition, sounds pretty good, except for this whole thing called, you know, the sin nature of humankind and total depravity. It sort of wrecks that system. Okay. Second ideology of stuff is called capitalism. Capitalism says, wealth belongs to me, the individual. And right now, some of you are going, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Praise God. Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Wealth belongs to me. I have complete say in how it is spent, always based on my needs and wants. Sounds pretty good, except for that whole sin nature thing and that you are totally depraved and you have a tendency to implode upon yourself and are no good to anyone around you. Just saying. And then there is a third ideology or a third philosophy or a third theology of stuff, and it's called Christianity. Wealth belongs to God and God alone. It is directed by God's will. Owned people don't own stuff. They steward. Now, that is a biblical refrain from cover to cover. Paul's writing this letter to the 2 Corinthians. It's a church in Greece with a very Western mindset. Paul actually writes four letters to the church at Corinth. We only have numbers two and number four. 
And they started to get mad at Paul because they said, hey, you said you were going to come back and visit us. You said you were going to come back and visit us. What happened? And so in 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter, chapters 1 and 2, he explains, I got held up. It was that vexing, irritating thing, you know, uh, what do you call it? Prison. Sorry, I couldn't get back to Corinth. I was in jail. And then from chapters 2 all the way through 7, he explains the basis of his ministry, what it's all about, why grace has come and what it means for the people who have received that grace. And so that leads him then finally to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, how we are to express, how are we to respond to all of that. So let me just walk through this very, very briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, we want you to know brothers, shoulder to shoulder, doesn't domineer over them, doesn't demand anything. He invites them into this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And you might have a tendency, like I do, to just go right past that. But Paul just said something utterly shocking. The grace of God has been given through the churches. In the Old Testament, God himself was the steward and the administrator of his grace. In the time of Christ in his earthly ministry, Jesus was the dispenser. He was the administrator, the steward of God's grace. In the church age, it is the church that is distributing, dispensing God's grace. I want you to know this. Generosity is a synonym for grace. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Incidentally, this is the most grace-soaked passage in your entire New Testament. In chapters 7 and 8, or sorry, 8 and 9 alone, he'll use the term grace 19 times. And the text that we'll cover this morning, he'll use it seven times. It is the most grace-soaked chapter in all of your Bible. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. What's Paul doing? He's saying, let me explain what God's doing in these churches in Macedonia. Because Corinth is in southern Greece, on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. But Macedonia, that's Thessalonica, Berea, and Philippi. And those churches were dirt poor. And yet, they gave out of a desire. You can't stop us from giving. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. This word extreme poverty is kind of a combination of two words. Extreme is really deep. It's the word bathus. You might remember about 70 years ago, two insane Navy sailors decided, hey, here's a bright idea. Let's go down to the very bottom of the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean because it's really deep and dark and stupid. And they went, we'll fund that. And so the Navy put them in this thing called a bathosphere. It's a deep craft that goes in and it gets crushed by the weight. This is the word that Paul uses for their poverty. And not just poor, they are in Greek, ptokes. It even sounds like when you say ptokes, like you're going to precipitate on somebody, ptokes. It is dirt poor. It is the kind of poor where my dad would say, you're so poor, you're so broke, you can't even afford to pay attention. It's that kind of poor. And it was deep, Paul says, and they had great Joy. Now that is upside down, inside out, and backwards from the way a Western mindset works, thinking about wealth. Paul says they had great joy in their deep poverty. In other words, joy has nothing to do with stuff. Joy has nothing to do with wealth or resources, but in the giving it away or redistributing it as God would have 
direction. For in a severe test of affliction, these Macedonians had an abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. That's good. Not according to what they didn't have. They gave according to what they did have. For I can testify, they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us, not the other way around. Paul wasn't begging them. They were begging Paul and the other apostles earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What's going on? Well, this is Project Jerusalem. The Jerusalem churches, along with Antioch, had sent off Paul and these other missionaries, apostles, to go and plant these churches. And that had begun and that was happening. But while that's going on, the churches in Jerusalem are being utterly persecuted. They're being wiped out. And so they have no resources left. And so these sending churches are having to rely on these Gentile new believers from Europe to support them financially. Now, I just want you to see the beautiful picture that it is of the church, where you've got these Jewish Christians who had supported and funded and founded these Gentile churches who are praying for these Gentile believers and these Gentile believers are begging Paul for the privilege of sending funds back to support the saints in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you're a parent or not, but I just want you to imagine how that stirs the heart of God with love and compassion and tenderness and joy when he sees that kind of thing happening. Verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And there is the key. They had first given themselves to the Lord. So I say this every now and then when we have a, con a, a conversation or a sermon or a series on generosity. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, do not give your resources to the Lord. Not kidding. Right now my finance committee just had a seizure. But stick with me. Because that's bad for you. Because you would, by definition, not understand the heart of God, and you might be tricked into thinking that if I just give him some stuff, he'll owe me back, and it's quid pro quo. It's a transaction. That's not how our God works. If you're not a believer, don't, don't give to the work of the Lord. If you are a believer, you, you, you give all that you are and have, and only then decide what do you maintain back. That's what Paul's telling us about these Macedonians. Very clever. He's comparing the churches in Corinth with the churches in Macedonia. A little bit of comparison is the giver of joy, trying to spur them on and to help them understand this is the normative way a church operates. Verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so, should, so he should complete among you this act of grace. I'm sure Titus loved this. Okay, Paul, you're sending me to Corinth. Great, got it. I'll get some penicillin. Then what do I do? Well, you're going to teach him about money. Oh, Paul, for seriouses, they're a Western Greek European church, Paul says, whoosh, go get him, tiger. You got this. I know exactly how Titus feels. We urge Titus that as he started, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You're doing everything great. You've got doctrine. You've got covered dishes. You've got all these wonderful things. You've even got Sunday school for children. You've even got life groups. You're doing great things in Sierra Leone. But you've turned off the spigot. You've begun to think that your stuff is your stuff. And that's beginning to have a cancerous effect on your soul. I say this not as a command, verse 8, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the clearest utterances of the gospel in your Bible. It's just a wonderful, artistic, artful enunciation of who God is, what he did in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Listen, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, marvelous. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's the great exchange. Now, wealth here has nothing to do with commas in numbers. Wealth, spiritually, always has to do with the proximity and the presence of God. Jesus was rich. For eternity, he has been in the presence of the triune God, had experiencing and enjoying perfect fulfillment and joy. But for your sake, he laid that aside, he says in verse 9. Though he was rich, right with God, because he is God. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He laid it aside. He incarnated. He stepped into our stank, into our circumstance, into our smell, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, so that you might have a lot of material resources? No. So that you could be indwelled by the third member of the Godhead Trinity and have the Spirit of God, and he literally could not be closer. And so by that account, you are wealthy, when we measure it in terms of the Spirit of God and the presence of God. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You had all gotten lathered up. You heard the teaching, and you were going to give to Project Jerusalem, and then you went, yeah, I don't know, and you held off. So the only imperative in this entire two-chapter section, which we're not going to do at all, the only imperative comes here in verse 11. So now, finish doing it. It's the original Nike commercial. Just do it. You said you are going to do it, and then you got distracted. See, sin distracts us. Maybe nobody else in this room knows that besides me. Sin distracts us. It takes us out of the lane that God's leading us down. They got distracted. He says, Finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. I'm not trying to make you give what you don't have. I'm inviting you to give what you do have. For if the readiness is there, it is an acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that a matter of fairness. This is not about collectivization. It's about you getting to be a part of what God is doing in the world. Now, that's absolutely huge. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. And then Paul does something just beautiful. This is why we started out this way. Verse 15 is a quote back of Exodus 16. Paul's making a really large theological and ecclesiological claim. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's quoting from the Exodus story again. That in this age, the church and the people of the church are the stewards of God's grace. And so again, our big idea, generosity is a synonym for grace. So what do, we, what do we do with this? What do we take away from this? I want to give you seven, yeah, that's right, seven super quick principles on generosity that are taken directly from this passage. Could take in a whole lot more, but I like seven because it seems like God likes seven. Let's go with seven. First one goes like this. Generosity is a privilege. It's not a burden. It's not a beat down. It is a privilege we get to give. Oh, what freedom and joy, really, 
And let me just say, the unregenerate can't feel that. They might have a, a slight uptick in their emotions because they're participating in a cause, but it has nothing compared to the overwhelming joy of knowing that the God of the cosmos, who is real, who is sovereign, who is good, is inviting them to participate with what he is doing. Grace at work in us creates grace of spiritual gifts, which we are supposed to give back and edify the church. It wasn't Paul who was doing the begging. It was the churches of Macedonia begging Paul for the privilege of participation. Now, that's amazing to me. Who prays for the spiritual gift of giving? Not a whole lot of people. Most of us pray for the ability to give. Well, congratulations and good news. Your prayers have been answered. We all have the capacity to be generous. That's why we say this all the time here at Bethel. We want to be about growing communities, building leaders, and living generously. Number two, generosity is required for growth. We will always be stunted. We will always be hindered if we're not living and giving generously. In verse 6 and 7, faith, earnestness, knowledge, speech, love, and giving. The Corinthians were doing a lot, but they were incomplete. In 1 Corinthians, he said, I love you, but woo, y'all are wicked. Mm, man, clean it up in 1 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter we have, says now it's time for you to grow and go. Scripture makes it really clear. It's possible for Jesus to have our money, but not our hearts. It's impossible for Jesus to have our hearts, but not our wealth or resources or money. So it is required for growth. Number three, generosity is godly. Generosity is godly. Remember, Jesus is our king, our champion, our brother. He is worth being emulated. Praise be to God that Jesus went through what he went through, that he didn't merely have a good intention or a swell idea. He did it. When we give ourselves away, what we find is that we create space for him to move in and we become more and more and more like him. He uses it to make us more like himself. It is a part of our renewing, of our remaking, of our sanctification. Number four, generosity is joyous. Paul points to the churches in Macedonia and then he points to Jesus. I mean, you want to look at joy? Look at those churches in Macedonia. Can I just remind you too, the churches in Macedonia were not exactly pillars of the community, not exactly luminaries. You remember Philippi? Started by a wealthy fashionista named Lydia, a demon-possessed trafficked girl, and a suicidal civil servant in the Roman prison. And with that, we started church. And with those three people, the church of Philippi explodes. And within the first two weeks of their existence, they send Paul not one, but two financial gifts to support, fund, and finance his ministry by the time he's gotten to Thessalonica. It's amazing. Paul taught them it was to be a part of their DNA. And they experienced great joy. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling us, Paul, the people in Philippi said, that God's doing a thing over there that he did here. And we get to be a part of that? Shut your pie hole, Paul. Take our stuff. And we don't typically think about it like that. But our Bibles are trying to free us and to break us loose and to give us great joy from giving. No joke. There's no joy like the presence of God himself. Paul says, I'm not asking you for anything. I am offering you everything. Paul seems to be saying, listen, do you not understand when those who had nothingness are now called and invited to dispense everythingness. There's a great, great joy in that. And yes, 
most practically, most often, that looks like a, a material sort of generosity. Next, generosity is a discipline. Not a punishment. No, no, no. It is a discipline. Now do it. Plan on doing it and then do it. Nothing ever drifts to good in this world, including us. It's a volitional bringing of who and what we are to our God. Our default behavior in the world around us are not promoting this mindset. So we have to prayerfully plan on it and then actually do it. How much? How much should you? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, don't want to know. But Paul seems to be saying that no one who looks at the cross should instinctively begin to think in terms of percentages. Look at the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he accomplished, why he did what he did, how much he accomplished, and then, and then you respond accordingly. In fact, in the church age, we've sort of tended to default to this 10% tithe rule, but actually, if we were to take that Old Testament tithe sort of pattern, it would really come out to about 25 to 30% because of the frequency of that giving in the Old Testament. So tithe is never mentioned in the New Testament, not once. It's simply look at Jesus and may you excel and abound and overflow in your generosity. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe real rule is to give more than you can spare. Now that's convicting. And I think it's also correct. The quantity is simply to be tied to the quality of our new identity in Christ. Next point, generosity is a sacrifice. It costs us something. We are to feel it. It's a wonderful, familiar passage in 2 Samuel 24 where David is buying the threshing floor of Arauna, where the temple of God will ultimately be built. And Arauna says, no, 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 you're the king. You can just have it. David says, no, 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 I'm buying it. I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. Generosity in its truest form impacts both parties involved. Henry Taylor, wonderful, famous missionary, he put it this way, he who gives what he would as readily throw away gives without generosity, for the essence of generosity is in self-sacrifice. Seventh point, generosity is Christian community. It is us together stewarding the very grace of God to which he has entrusted us. This offering was highly symbolic that Paul was working on. It wasn't as much about the money as it was that Gentile Christians were giving to Jewish Christians. Their giving was a manifestation of the gospel truth that the dividing wall had been torn down that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. They're, the irreconcilable were reconciled, but not just tolerated, reconciled, where they're actually giving of themselves sacrificially for the sake of the other that previously they would have had no part in giving away that which the world perceives to be wealth strips away the barriers that prevent community and authenticity. But when we are mutually rich in our union with Christ, we are genuinely bound together. Generosity is a synonym for grace. The last thing I want to do, uh, the last thing our Bible is trying to do is to, is to try to guilt any of us into a temporary change out of obligation. Nope. It's not what our Bible's doing. It's not what I want to do because it never sticks and it never actually works. Instead, our Bible's inviting us to look to Jesus, to turn our eyes upon him. Back to verse nine. Jesus Christ, fabulously wealthy, not with money, but with the presence and the proximity of God. He laid it all aside so that those without God, poor, might have him and become rich. And so we said this last week. I want to say it again. 
There is no sanctification without generosity. I'm not trying to get into your bank account. I'm telling you what we believe fervently as the trustee elders, our downtown shepherding elders, all the elders of all the campuses, the pastors, as we've gotten together and been praying about this since 2019, that we believe the Lord is leading us to do. We are inviting you to participate above and beyond what you typically give, but to do so in joy. If you've got questions about any of that, I want to remind you that we have booklets that have pretty much all the information that we have about this. We're not trying to keep any secrets. We want to be as transparent as we possibly can be. Yes, we believe that God's calling us to raise $6 million, $2 million of which is for the acquisition of the properties directly adjacent to the east of the downtown campus for expansion. Are we trying to get big? No. No. But we do want to accommodate what we believe God is leading us to accomplish, which is creating additional open spaces at optimal times so that God will do for others what he has done for us. That's our priority. We believe that God is on the move and we want to be a part of it. This Jesus, who was rich, who became poor, and now we get to go and do likewise. Generosity is a synonym for grace. So, if you and your household and your family have already talked about this, already thought about this, already prayed about this, you can take one of those commitment cards and you can fill it out and you can drop it in that black box between our exit doors on your way out. Or you can use your phone and you can do it online. You can go to Bethelbible.com abundant and you can make a commitment that way. We're asking for people to commit over a two-year time period. Next week, August 28th, will be our final in-gathering where we will see what the people of God and Bethel Bible Church across all five campuses, what the responses have been. But I encourage you, if nothing else, to take one of those cards or take a couple of those cards and a booklet and read through and to pray through what we're asking you to pray through. The same Spirit of God indwells all of us. And this much we know, the Spirit of God's not gonna tell one group of people one thing and this group of people something else. So we all want to be in lockstep with one another and with His voice. So I'm so excited about what we believe God is doing in our midst. We're quite unworthy of it, but we're delighted at the grace of participation. So why don't you join me in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And we pray, God, that the gospel would continue to sound forth and that more people that you love, that you care about, that matter to you, would hear the gospel either from one of these contexts, one of our campuses, or from the people who dwell in these campuses. And that we would be intentionally active stewards of your grace. Father, if there's anyone this morning that is here that does not know you, that is trying to figure out what is the plan to get some good stuff by giving you some good stuff, would you remove that error from their minds and demonstrate that Jesus was rich and he became poor so that we might become rich in God? Would you give them the grace of belief that they would step out of death and into life? For the rest of us, Father, would you, by your spirit, by this community, remind us to do hard work and thought, do an evaluation and to plan through and to pray through how you would have each of us engage in what you are doing. God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your church, for your people. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.